are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hello, everybody. My name is David Guzik. Welcome to our Thursday afternoon time together where we get together and uh, you ask some questions and make comments, and I respond to your questions the very best that I can. And we spend these Thursday afternoons, at least an hour or so, just seeing what we can focus on here together. Uh, my Again, my name is David. I am a pastor, a Bible teacher, and uh, there's a few people around who know me from the commentary that I have on the entire Bible. I have a verse-by-verse commentary that goes from Genesis to Revelation, it's available on websites like uh, Blue Letter Bible, and then, of course, also my own website, EnduringWord.com. On Thursday afternoons, I want to give you this special greeting, uh, not only to our general audience, but also especially to our audience on TWR 360. Trans World Radio 360 is a marvelous, marvelous ministry that for decades and decades has been reaching the world through shortwave radio, and then now, of course, through the internet and all those associated internet vehicles, such as apps and the website and all the rest. We're grateful for our partnership with TWR360, and we want to welcome all of our viewers from there. This is how we do it on a Thursday afternoon. After some uh, beginning greetings, such as I'm giving right now, I take a lead question, something of my choice or something that's come in by email or a comment on a video or something. And then after that, we open it up to the questions that come in on the side chat. So for our YouTube viewers, you can just go over to the side chat. Excuse me, write a question down. Pardon me, I'm going to take a drink. Write your question or your comment in. Our moderator, Devin, will take a look at those and he'll prioritize them. And of course, we'll answer as many as we can in the next hour or so that's in front of us. I do want to give a special greeting to you all. I don't know when you're going to watch this because, in fact, many more people watch this after it's recorded, after the live presentation, than end up watching it during the live presentation. But I do want to give a special greeting to uh, all of you. Excuse me just for a moment. (coughs) Pardon me. I do want to give a special greeting to all of you here on this Holy Week, this week, uh, this first week of April in the year 2021, where we're getting ready for the day, Good Friday, when we commemorate the death of Jesus, and of course, Easter Sunday, that great day on the Christian calendar, when we commemorate his resurrection. So it's a wonderful time, an exciting week of the year for every believer, and it makes it appropriate for us to start off with our lead question today. Who did Jesus die for? Now, I understand I'm I'm probably using the incorrect grammar right here. Probably a more grammatically correct way to ask that question is, for whom did Jesus die? But again, I'll just use the more colloquial expression, uh, who did Jesus die for? And I think this is a good question for us to ask on this Thursday before Easter. And I say that no matter exactly how you believe the New Testament chronology works out, uh, I am aware that there are many people through the centuries that have tried to make the different arguments 
as for what the exact day was that Jesus was crucified. And when I say day, I mean day on the calendar, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, that kind of thing. Uh, Traditionally, Christians have adopted the Friday crucifixion, the idea uh, being uh, that Good Friday is celebrated throughout the Christian world, and it's very much ingrained in Christian tradition. Uh, other people argue for a Thursday uh, a crucifixion. There's different arguments to make on both sides. But whether or not you believe Jesus was actually crucified on Thursday or crucified on Friday, the question, for whom did Jesus die, is a question of some controversy. Really, in some respect, it gets into the debate between Calvinism and non-Calvinism. Uh, the system described uh, Calvinistic doctrine along these five points, tulip, so to speak. Uh, one of those points, limited atonement, seeks to define the extent of the work of Jesus's uh, death on the cross. In my addressing of the question today, who did Jesus die for? I'm really not going to focus on that controversy. I would have to say this, though. The two sides, in my estimation, are not as far apart as they often imply. And so with just that in mind, I'm really not going to take a look at the controversy uh, between limited atonement and not limited. I just want to take a look at what the Bible says, recognizing that the two sides on this particular point, in my estimation, are really not as far apart as they often imply. Okay, so I just want to take a look now at what the Bible teaches regarding this. And for that, what we want to do is we want to go and let me go to a... uh, presentation here. Okay. I just want to show you here a few slides and go over some scriptural verses with you. Uh, First of all, I I want to just make the point that one must believe on Jesus, that is, trust in, rely on, and cling to him to have everlasting life. We know the verse. You know the verse. Many of you do. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And again, from that, I would just make the simple point that one must believe on Jesus. Now, when we talk about believing on Jesus, we're not talking about agreeing to the idea that he existed or was a good man or did great things. The sense of the word used in the original language of the Bible to believe on Jesus is to trust in him, to rely on him, to cling to him. It's really a matter of loving trust in Jesus. One must believe on Jesus to have everlasting life. So we're going to take that just sort of as a starting point to kind of frame the rest of our discussion here. Number two, we would just go to the point simply to say that Jesus Christ is the only Savior— and he saves those who believe. Look at this verse from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. In it, the Apostle Paul, writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this, For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially those of those who believe. And what's interesting here is here, Paul speaks about Jesus being the Savior 
of all men, he doesn't express that in a universalist sense. And again, we just know this by comparing scripture with scripture. What he's trying to point out here is that there is only one savior for all men. It isn't as if Christians have one savior and other people of other religious traditions might have other saviors. No, if any man, any woman who's ever existed is going to be saved, it's going to be three through Jesus Christ. And he adds this and he wants to focus especially of those who believe. You saw that there. You see, Jesus's work is adequate to save everyone, but it's only effective in saving those who come to him by faith. So that work of Savior, Jesus Christ, the Savior of everyone who would be saved, but it's especially of those who believe. I like what Adam Clark had to say in his commentary. Uh, Let me pull out uh, Adam Clark here. This isn't the proper volume, but here's one of the volumes of my edition of Adam Clark. I like this nice old edition of it. Adam Clark says this, Um, What God intends for all, he actually gives to them that believe in Christ, who died for the sins of the world. And so simply here, um, God gives salvation to those who believe. Now, with that understood, I would go to our next point here, simply to say that in some sense, Jesus died for the whole world. I don't really think that this can or should be denied scripturally that in some sense Jesus died for the whole world. If you want to look at it here in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, we read, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Here, John, again, writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us, that Jesus's sins made propitiation was a suitable, a a, a big enough sacrifice for the whole world. It's kind of interesting, and it's something worthy of a deeper dive, but it's interesting to go into the Old Testament and look at the distinction between atonement and forgiveness. You see, you could say that all of Israel received atonement on the Day of Atonement, yet not every individual Israelite's sin was forgiven. Not every individual Israelite was saved because of that. But but again, in these words, also for the whole world that we read of here in 1 John 2, 2, that announces to the world that God has taken care of the sin problem by the atonement, by the propitiation of Jesus Christ. Sin doesn't need to be a barrier between God and man if man will, by faith, receive the propitiation that God has provided for in Jesus Christ. You know, it's for everybody. It wasn't just for Peter. It wasn't just for Paul. As Martin Luther said, no, no, no. He, he writes for the whole world to know that you are included in this, if you will believe. Uh, There's another verse here that speaks to us of how Jesus died for the whole world. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9 says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Again, there is a sense in which Jesus' death was for the whole world. 
I'll kind of talk about that a little bit more in a moment. Let me just bring up a few other verses here. I want you to understand, too, as a fourth point, that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the Savior of the world. We have this verse from John chapter 4, verse 42. Now, actually, these are Samaritan villagers saying this about Jesus. But from the context, we know that this is a statement that receives approval. It's a true statement. It isn't just somebody's opinion. They said, we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Isn't that a glorious title for Jesus Christ? That he is, in fact, the Savior of the world. Now, it's important to understand in what sense that is true. It is not that Jesus saves the whole world, that is, every person. That would be something called universalism something that the Bible does not teach. I don't mean this to be an entire Bible study on universalism, so I'm really not going to get into that, but let's just take it for that. Um, the, the Bible does not teach universalism. Then in what way is Jesus the Savior of the world? Well, Jesus is the Savior for the whole world. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. This is one of the glorious aspects of Christianity. It is a translatable faith. It wasn't intended to be kept just in one language or among one people. No, it was meant to go out to the ends of the earth, to, to, to make disciples of all nations. Jesus is the Savior for the whole world. And it's also true that Jesus is the world's only Savior. Do you understand the importance of that? There's not another Savior other than Jesus he is the Savior of the world. Now, let me bring up another verse relevant to this question of who did Jesus die for? And this idea that Jesus died for the world, that his death did something for the entire world. We understand his death did not save the whole world. Then what did it do for the whole world? Now, look at this verse here from Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, where it says, And by him, that is by Jesus to reconcile all things to himself, all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Notice that phrasing there, all things will be reconciled unto Jesus Christ. And friends, I think that's a very important principle. At the end of all things, everyone and everything will be reconciled in Jesus Christ. Now, I didn't say, and the Bible does not say, that everyone will go to heaven. You see, they will either be reconciled under his gracious mercy, and their destination is heaven, or they will be reconciled under God's judgment, the judgment of Jesus. And that will be in hell in Gehenna, the lake of fire. You see, everything will be reconciled. I want you to take one more look at this, because here Paul ties it directly to the cross. And by him to reconcile all things to himself, that's Jesus, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Listen, hell will be, in some respect, a resolution of peace. The fighting will be over. Sin will be judged. 
righteousness will be accomplished. Everything will be reconciled in Jesus Christ. Peace will be made for all and unto all through the cross, either in heaven or in hell. Please remember, friends, Jesus Christ is not only the Savior of the world, He is certainly Savior of the world, but He is also the Judge of all the world. Let me read to you a couple verses. John chapter 5, verse 22 says, For as the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Don't forget that. Jesus is not only the Savior of all the world, He is the judge of all the world. Let me give you one other verse that expresses this. Acts chapter 10, verse 42. And He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is He, Jesus, who was ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Man, that's it. Jesus will be the judge of all humanity. And that is one of the ways that he will reconcile all things. I want you to consider this. Jesus will judge all humanity as a crucified judge, as a judge who himself took off the the robes, the clothing of a judge, and sacrificed himself for the sins of humanity, for all who would believe upon him. And that will be the one who sits in judgment. Someone who knows the salvation that was offered to humanity. That's a heavy thing, isn't it? All right, let me wrap it up with these thoughts. So who can we say that Jesus died for? Well, in one sense, Jesus died for the whole world, at least in two ways. Okay, Number one, Jesus died on the cross to demonstrate the love of God for the whole world. The whole world can and should know that God loves them because of the death of Jesus Christ. Number two, Jesus died on the cross as the ground of righteousness from which he will judge all things, reconciling all things in himself in the light of the cross, whether that is in heaven or whether that is in hell. Again, I think these are important, heavy questions to deal with. You see, um, in another sense, we can say, Jesus' death on the cross only effectively saves those who believe in him. That's it. The death of Jesus on the cross does not save those who do not believe, but for all who will believe, it does save. When I say, dear listener or viewer, that can be you. You today can put your faith in Jesus Christ. You can look to Jesus. Go ahead then. Read your Bible. Read the story of Jesus in the, in the, the, the New Testament Gospels and all throughout the Bible. The whole Bible testifies of Jesus. And look at who he is and who he claimed to be and put your look away from yourself and put your trust in him, in who he is and what he did to save you. And then you will know that Jesus died not only to demonstrate the love of God to you, not only to make it a ground of righteousness, but Jesus died 
to bring you salvation. And when it comes to what Jesus did on the cross, there is no limit on its capability to save everyone who comes to him by faith. The work of Jesus on the cross will never run out of saving power. It is filled with effective saving power. All right, well, that's it for our lead question for the day. Now I'm going to take a look at what uh, Devin has been forwarded to me, and we'll take a look at these uh, questions for our live chat today. Here's one that comes from Jose. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, fornication is against the body. Is this the only sin that is against the body? How about gluttony, drugs, alcohol, etc.? Well, Hosea, you're, oh, Jose, I should say, not Hosea, Jose, um, I, you're absolutely correct. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 tells us that fornication, that is a sexual sin in its broad definition, that, that is the idea behind the word that's translated in some Bible translates fornication, the idea really is of sexual immorality in a biblical sense. That is to sin against one's own body. Now, it nowhere says that that is the only way that someone can sin against their own body. So we don't want to say something that the scriptures don't say. And you're right, there is a sense in which gluttony or drugs or alcohol can also be sins against one's own body. But we would say that Sexual immorality also provides a special, if you were, way that a person sins against the body. Because uh, when that sexual immorality is associated with another person, Paul describes there in 1 Corinthians how the person becomes, in one sense, one flesh with them. And that is a different dynamic than, let's say, gluttony. Gluttony is a sin against my body in that I'm not treating my body well by overeating or eating terrible things. But I'm not becoming one flesh with another person in an immoral way through gluttony. Um, So there is a special way that sexual immorality is a sin against the body. Uh, But if you want to take that broad definition of what is a sin against the body, it's not the only way that a person would sin against their body. Jose, I hope that helps you there. Uh, Gracia, your question is, uh, can you describe the importance of the two witnesses in Revelation 11 about being Jews and Gentiles? Okay, well, Gracia, let me just uh, clarify the question here. To my understanding, there is nothing in the text in Revelation that indicates that they are Jew and Gentile. We can speculate that that's the case. And certainly we know that the vision from Zechariah that is connected, is it Zechariah indeed, Uh, that is connected to the work of the two witnesses, uh, the olive branches that give a continual supply of the Holy Spirit, That is intimations of the new covenant, which includes Gentiles within it, of course. But I don't see anything specific in the text of Revelation chapter 11 that says that the identity of the two witnesses is Jew and Gentile. Perhaps one being Jew, one being Gentile. So um, I just don't know. If you're looking for a significance in the two witnesses, 
I don't think that it's necessarily that it would be Jew and Gentile, but that the two witnesses would be in the significance that the Old Testament law specified that it was by the mouth of one or, excuse me, by two or three witnesses that any word would be established. So the fact that God gives two witnesses shows that they speak forth an established word. Uh, That's my more immediate connection with the number two having to do with the witnesses, not that one would have to be Jew or one would represent Gentiles. That's at least my take on it, Gratia. Thank you for that question. Thomas asks the question, does God use prophets today like he used the prophet Gad in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 5? Uh, That verse says in the King James, And the prophet Gad said unto David, Abide not in the hold, depart and get thee into the land of Judah. Then David departed and came into the forest of Hareth. Thomas, I guess your question is this. Does God use prophets today to give specific direction to individuals? Um, This is a question filled with landmines. Basically, Thomas, let me give you a basic answer to it. It's basic with a lot of explanation added to it. But I I would just say, yes. God gives prophetic words to his people today uh, that he uses to perhaps guide them in a specific situation. Now, I, I say that as someone who has received on more than one occasion, I wouldn't say dozens and dozens, but on more than one occasion, I have received a prophetic word that has been very rich in guidance for me, and on one occasion, at least in a very specific sense. If I were to tell you all the circumstances behind that prophetic word, I think you would understand what I mean, and maybe we could do that another time. Now, I'm not much on people claiming today the title prophet. So Thomas, I want you to, one of the caveats I would give that is, I don't like to speak today in terms of people being prophets. I think God may bring a prophetic word through an individual, but my experience teaches me that once people start walking around with the title prophet, or the title apostle, things get weird. And I don't think we need that weirdness. So if somebody genuinely believes that God uses them in a prophetic sense, you don't need the title prophet. Who are you trying to impress with that title? You don't need it. So leave aside the title. And and if God wants to use you in such a way, then let God use you. Here's the second thing I would say. Any claimed prophetic word needs to be tested. Tested. That's what the Bible says. Test any purported prophetic word. You test it, first of all, through the scriptures. Secondly, you test it through um, the agreement of mature people of God who uh, would discern whether or not something would actually be the voice of the Holy Spirit in in a situation. That's number two. So first of all, stay away from the title prophet. Number two, test every word of prophecy. And number three, I think it's wrong 
to seek out prophetic words. I don't seek prophetic words. The profound occasions when God has brought to me what I believe to be a genuine word of prophecy, it wasn't because I was directly seeking it. Don't run after purported prophets to get a prophetic word. That's more like fortune telling than it is seeking after the will of God. If God wants to bring you a prophetic word, he knows how to do it. You don't have to go running after it. You want to seek the word of God? Seek it right here in the Bible. Now, again, I'm not disallowing that God may bring somebody a prophetic word, but my experience teaches me nothing but bad things come when people start seeking out prophetic words. A lot of danger and corruption comes from that. So, Thomas, that's kind of a long answer to your question, but um, I believe that it is possible for God today to specifically guide people through a prophetic word. It may not be terribly common, uh, but I believe it's, it hasn't been common in my life. In my life, fundamentally, God guides me through the scriptures, but there have been occasions where God has given me a clear, specific prophetic word. Um, okay, let me go on to the next question. N gives this question. When the Bible says, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Does that mean that our marriages that God did not join together? What does God join together mean? And then number two, are all marriages, male and female marriages, joined by God, even if one marries a non-believer? And let, let me just answer your questions very succinctly. Number one, any legal marriage is a marriage that God has joined together. It has been sanctioned by God because it's done through the normal customary channels. And unless there was some fundamental deception in the marriage, um, unless there was some, you know, thing to where the, 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 there's a sense in which a marriage relationship is a contract. Of course, it's much more than that. But if there was some fraud in the contract, then you could say, well, God never joined together that marriage. Uh, but generally speaking, I would say, yes, um, a marriage that is recognized by the state has been joined together. Um, secondly, are all marriages, male and female marriages, joined by God, even if one marries a non-believer? To that, the question is also yes. The question came up in the Corinthian church because uh, people were coming to faith and their spouse, their husband or wife, they were not believers. And the teaching was going around in the Corinthian church that it would be uh, better for them to divorce their husband or wife rather than to remain married to them. Listen, that is something that Paul said, no. God is working in your marriage. God has a blessing on your marriage. Don't you, Christian, be the one to break apart your marriage. If the unbeliever departs, then the unbeliever departs. But don't you, believer, be the one to break apart that marriage covenant. So uh, that gives the idea that, yes, even a marriage between a believer and an unbeliever, that is something that God has joined together. Now, I don't know if you've seen the video that I have on this very same YouTube channel about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Um, 
but I, I think maybe you might be interested in watching that. So again, that's an answer to your question there though, N. Um, yes, uh, God joined together means that that is for uh, all marriages that are legally recognized. Okay, uh, Lupe asks this question. In Luke 1, Zechariah was afraid of the angel that appeared to him. Why? Was it common for angels to appear, or did they only appear when they pronounced judgment? Lupe, that's a great question. Um, First of all, we don't have any indication that it was common for angels to appear. So you would expect that Zechariah would be afraid just because of shock, number one. I mean, when he was in the temple, the holy place, he was in there all alone. And if you've ever been in that situation when you're in a room all alone and then suddenly you find out you're not alone, somebody you didn't know was there with you, that itself can give you a fright. Well, how much more if that being is of a different order, of a different class of being, is an angelic being? But the other aspect of this to remember, it wasn't just the shock of having another person in the room. It was also the shock of being in the presence of a glorious angel. Lupe, I want you to understand that when you go through the Bible, just take a look at the words that angels speak when they first appear to someone. The words almost always begin like this. Do not be afraid. Fear not. That's like the first message the angel brings. Don't be afraid. Why? Because apparently many, many people, their first reaction to an encounter of the angelic is fear. There's something glorious. There's something powerful. There's something awesome, awe-filled, awe-full, if you want to say, full of awe about simply being in the presence of an angel. So Zechariah's reaction to the angel there in the temple was very common scripturally. Most of the time, when a human being in the Bible comes in uh, the presence of an angel, the human being is terrified. So that has something to tell us about the the presence of the angelic. Okay, uh, next question here is from Jordan. First Corinthians seems to convey the idea that the church was experiencing the full array of the, of the spiritual gifts. Why aren't more modern churches seeing this, for example, the working of miracles, uh, prophecies? Well, Jordan, that's a good question, and I don't know if we have a absolute answer to that question. There could be many reasons. Um, but I, I would say this. There are two errors that we fall into, maybe more than two, but I'll give you at least two errors. The error on the one side is believing that God no longer works or wants to work today in such spiritual gifts. I believe that he does. But there is another error that we can be guilty of. And that error is the attitude that there's something upon our shoulders to make these gifts happen. Friends, that is a very dangerous attitude to have. Um, We should not be of the mentality that it is our responsibility to make the gifts happen. 
And whenever Christians get into that mentality, a lot of trouble comes forth from it. Remember what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians, that the Holy Spirit gives the gifts as he wills, as he wills. Now, it's our job to be open. It's our job to not hinder, but it is not our job to make the gifts happen. It needs to happen by the Holy Spirit of God. So, the other thing I would say is that we do notice, and and this is sort of a historical observation, that there are times or seasons when you would say there is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The church movement uh, that I am associated with, the Calvary Chapel Church Movement, is something that started in the late 1960s in Southern California through the ministry of a very blessed, wonderful man named Chuck Smith. And God mightily used Pastor Chuck Smith. He was one of, uh, of a handful of people that God really raised up during the Jesus movement. Well, those Jesus movement of the hippie days of the late 1960s and early 70s, in that season, there was a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit related to spiritual gifts. And I'm just going to be very straightforward with you. It's not like that today uh, in the Calvary Chapel family of churches. Now, somebody could start listing reasons, but I'll tell you, I don't believe that the main reason is, well, we just decided we don't want those things. I, I understand it's complicated and there's a lot of things to discuss in this. But I also think that there is a measure of sovereignty of the Holy Spirit. When there are seasons when God just says, I'm going to pour out my spirit a certain time, a certain place. Now, it's not to say that those other times are devoid of the work of the Spirit. I'm not trying to imply that at all. The Holy Spirit is at work among his people all the time. And the Holy Spirit is at work in very ordinary means. The Holy Spirit is at work among the very ordinary means of preaching the Word of God, teaching the Bible verse by verse, calling people to salvation, worshiping God, praying. We understand this, and we do not despise the ordinary work of the Holy Spirit, while at the same time, we recognize that there are times when there is a particular outpouring, a particular season, when God specially pours out the presence, the manifestations, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I would suggest to you, uh, Jordan, that what we see in 1 Corinthians and in the early church was just one of those seasons. And again, it's not to say that we shouldn't be open to the operation of those things, that we shouldn't pray for them, but we should not try to manufacture them. God forbid. Um, No, we want to be open. We want our hearts to be believing, expectant, but without trying to create things, thinking we're doing a favor for the Holy Spirit. So Jordan, I understand that answer to that question is a little bit all over the place, but I I hope it was uh, coherent enough. Let me go on to the next question that comes from Diana. Diana asks, they say the sufferings and trials of this life are preparation for our future assignments in heaven. Is heaven going to have stress? (laughs) The Bible says there are no sorrows in heaven. What do you say? 
Diana, that is a great, great question. And let me just specify here. Diana, I want to apologize for the sometimes sloppy theology that comes forth from preachers and teachers like me and like others. So, Diana, let me see if I can explain it a little more clearly for you. Um, there will be nothing in heaven that stresses us out. <laughs> Not at all. We'll be beyond that. Yet there will be ways that we serve God. Now, I believe that this is true in at least two senses. First, I believe that after the glorious second coming of Jesus, he will establish an earthly kingdom that will go on for a thousand years. Now, that doesn't limit the reign of Jesus. Jesus Christ reigns forever and ever. But there will be a special thousand-year period where we, the people of God, reign with him. And we will be given different responsibilities during that period to be sort of the civil servants, the administrators, his servants, his, his, uh, his underlings, so to speak, his workers. We will be given different responsibilities based on our faithfulness in the here and now. So we are being prepared for those things. That's one aspect. But then even beyond considering that thousand years of Jesus's reign on this earth, which again, I want to emphasize, does not limit the reign of Jesus. He's going to reign forever. But in the reign of Jesus in eternity beyond, we will have ways that we serve God. One of the things it says about uh, heaven, I believe it's in Revelation chapter 22. It could be Revelation chapter 21. I know it's in the book of Revelation. <laughs> it says that in heaven, his servants, I hope that's you, I hope that's me, his servants shall serve him. Isn't that a wonderful thought? That our service to God will not be exhausted on earth, but in some way we will serve him in heaven. And it may very well be that not only on what I would call the millennial earth, but also in eternity in the future, heaven, we will have ways that we serve God and our capability or responsibility in service may differ compared to the faithfulness that we've displayed on this earth. But no, uh, Diana, I do want to agree with you and point out that there will be uh, nothing in that situation in heaven uh, that stresses us out in the slightest way. Every tear will be wiped away. And even as we um, are co-workers with Jesus on the millennial earth, it will be uh, very much uh, in God's peace, in God's empowering. I, I don't think we're going to be stressed in that either. We'll be moved to a uh, uh, existence beyond the stress and the cares of this world. All right, let me go to the next question from Donald. Donald asks the questions. Why was Cain's offering not accepted by God? Was it because it was not a blood offering? What does it mean to give in faith? Okay, Donald, that's a great question. When we read the account 
of the offerings of Cain and Abel in uh, the book of Genesis, what is it, Genesis chapter 4. It would be easy just from the reading in Genesis to come up with the idea that the difference between the two offerings was that Abel brought a blood offering, something from the flock, a lamb, and Cain brought a non-bloody offering, a grain offering. So we would think that that was the difference between the two. They, they weren't the right kinds of offering. But then there's two things that change our mind about that opinion. The first thing is the understanding that in the law of Moses, God accepted both kinds of offerings. God accepted grain offerings and he accepted blood offerings. Now, grain offerings were not accepted for the atonement of sin and for other kinds of sacrifices, but grain offerings were accepted as fellowship offerings or thank offerings. And we're not told what kind of sacrifice specifically that Cain and Abel were offering, but uh, the, the later system of sacrifice in the law of Moses does not exclude the offering of grain. That's number one. Number two, we know from Hebrews chapter 11 that the real difference between the offering of Cain and the offering of Abel was that Abel brought his offering by faith. Blood was not the difference. Faith was the difference. Friends, whatever we offer unto God, whether you offer unto God your time, whether you offer unto God your treasure, your material resources, whatever you offer unto God in your talents, your gifts and ability, time, treasure, or talents, we must offer it to God in faith. Now, what does that mean? Well, I think it means a lot. But one of the things it definitely means is this. Whatever we offer to God, we offer unto him, never trusting in ourselves or our offering, but trusting in him. God, I offer you this, but I'm not trying to earn my way. I'm not trying to buy you off with this sacrifice. No, Lord, I'm offering it to you in faith of a perfect sacrifice that you will later provide. And I understand that this sacrifice points towards that sacrifice. That is what it means to offer such a sacrifice in faith. So uh, whenever we offer such things, uh, looking to ourselves or trying to make ourselves worthy before God, nothing but trouble. But to offer it in faith, God does great and mighty things in and through that. Let me go on to the next question from uh, Clara Bellist. It says, How do we explain the death of Jesus on the cross to young children of around three to five years without unnecessarily upsetting or frightening them? Well, Clara Bellis, that's a great question. And I, I don't know if I have the best answer on that, to tell you the truth. But first of all, you would have to have a child that has the concept of death. And I, I don't know at what age children begin to really develop the concept of death and what it means for a person to die. I'm sure it's different for different children. If the child really doesn't have the concept of death, then I would just talk about it mainly in the terms of love. 
of what Jesus did in terms of love. Now, when a child comes to a concept of death, then they also have to come to really understand what Jesus did on the cross. They have to come to an understanding of a sacrificial death, of a substitutionary death, of dying on behalf of somebody else. And if a child is of an age to understand those things, then we can explain it to them kind of more straightforwardly. But if child is not of the age to understand such things, then I would express it mainly just in the terms of what Jesus did to show us how much he loves us, what Jesus did to rescue us. Then you can bring in, secondly, after love, after rescue, bring up the idea of a substitution. He did something in our place. He took a punishment that we deserve, but he took for us. And then third, you can bring up the point about it being as unto death. He did it unto death. So again, Clarabellas, I, I got to say, I don't know if I have the best answer on that question, but those are kind of the things I would think about in a way to explain the work of Jesus on the cross to a very young child. Um, very happy to say and to greet our viewers from the UK, Nebraska, Wisconsin, all over the United States. Very, very pleased that you could join us today. And uh, with that, I think we're going to wrap it up for our show today. I do want to say that I want to wish you a very, very blessed Good Friday, remembering the death of Jesus, and an especially blessed Easter Sunday resurrection, where we remember the marvelous and universe-changing resurrection of Jesus from the dead, where he triumphed over sin and death. So blessings to you for that. I don't mind asking you to remember to pray for the ongoing work of Enduring Word, especially our work of translation into many languages. Blessings to you, dear brothers and sisters, uh, over these three days of Good Friday through Easter Sunday. And may God pour out the power and the love and the grace of the um, loving, sacrificing, uh, victorious Jesus Christ. May he pour all that out into your life. God bless you. And thank you so much for joining us today. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.